Welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm today's host, Randall Jacobs, and with me is Monica Garrison. Monica is the founder, executive director, and chief storyteller of Black Girls Do Bike, an organization she founded in 2013 and has grown to 100 plus chapters worldwide. BlackGirlsDoBike.org is where you can find more about her organization. She's also a skilled professional photographer and videographer whose work you can find on her personal website, MonicaGodfrey.com, Godfrey being her maiden name. And with that, I'd like to bring my friend, Monica Garrison, to join us here. So Monica, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's been a while in the making. So let's dive right in. What were your motivations for starting Black Girls Do Bike? Black Girls Do Bike came from a place of uh, longing for community. I was um, discovering my joy of, or my love of cycling in the summer, springish of 2013. And after a few months of riding and, you know, discovering my city in a new way and spending time with my kids, um, I, at the end of all that, I realized that, that I didn't see many women who look like me on, on bikes in my town. And so, I, you know, these women are either out there and I, I can't find them or they, they don't exist and they need to know about how great cycling is. <clears throat> because I have found cycling to be very um, healing in a lot of ways, you know, mentally healing, obviously physically healing. Um, and so when I went to the internet to find these women, I, I didn't really find um, good representation of, of women of color on bikes. And so that was that was the birth, the genesis of Black Girls Who Bike. It was, it was like, well, let's create this space and invite women into it and see what happens. And, um, and the rest is history. And you're based where? I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, it sounds like this was a very personal for you. So before we dive into the organization, I want to talk. I want to hear more about your personal journey with the bike. I mean, I I, I think like most people, I rode as a child. I'm, I spent my summers on my bike uh, with my brother around my Pittsburgh neighborhood, Lincoln Lemington, where I grew up. And mm-hmm. and it, so it was a big part of my childhood. And then I think like most most women, maybe we just stopped riding, and at some point. And, and then when you get to a point where the burdens of life kind of catch up with you and you're looking for ways to, to ease those those burdens, you look hopefully to exercise or to some other outlet. And um, for me, having all those good memories of riding my bike and feeling stress-free, um, I, turned to, I turned to cycling. But it was, it was cool because I started to connect with Bike Pittsburgh, which is our local bike pit, pet organization here. And I discovered, you know, this great community of, of bike advocates and people of all sizes and genders and um, who just wanted to ride their bike carefree and, and do it safely. And so that opened up a lot of possibilities um, as to what riding even meant for me here. And what was your, what was your first bike and how'd you come about it? Uh, the very first bike, like yeah. <laughs> back. Well, going going back uh, yeah, to your yeah. your most recent journey back onto two wheels. Back on the bike, yeah. So I I did um I think what everyone my generation does I I just research like crazy online to figure out what kind of bike I needed, and I decided that there was it was Vita was the name of it made by Specialized and it just mm-hmm. seemed perfect and then and the styling was right up my alley so um just like a hybrid commuter type bike um, but it was the perfect tool to get me back on my bike because it was so versatile I could ride on any type of terrain and it was very comfortable um, despite the small seat I was apprehensive that it would actually be comfortable but it, it really was and um, yeah so that bike got me through that first year 
and because I was so obsessed with cycling by the end of that first year, um, I added another bike to my stable by the second, you know, the following summer, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. more of a road bike, um, drop bars to, you know, help me with the speed and even more, it was even more comfortable. So there you go. So that Vita, if it was a 2013 or 2014, um, I would have had a hand in it because I was at Specialized and that was one of the bikes under, um, I wasn't the product manager, but I would have been doing the bill of materials and um, the supply chain stuff for that bike. Yeah. So, so I know that bike reasonably well. Yeah. 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 No, it was a great, it was a great bike. And I, when I finally sold it, I, I sold it to someone like it was, it was a good cause. I knew they needed that bike at that time. But mm-hmm. I really didn't want to let it go because it, it, it is really, it was really a great bike. Yeah, it's. I still it's, recommend uh, to people today. They're like, "What should I start on?" I'm like, "Well, I started on the Vita and I loved it." Um, and then you know there are other bikes that are comparable across all the brands, but um, yeah, that bike, that bike stole my heart. Well, and that sort of machine, you know, they you you can you know, they go up into the couple of thousands, but you can get an entry level one at around 500 bucks or so. And it's a fine machine for getting off the ground. And that's, I think that that accessibility is a real critical um, area of our sport that, that, um, you know, needs to be addressed. We have a lot of people in our community that are riding, you know, fancy super bikes, but you have to get a start somewhere. And that's a fine machine. And I had done, like I had done the, the cheaper bikes and I knew all the things, you know, in terms of comfort and durability that they, and so I said, I'm going to invest in myself, right? I'm going to, if I'm going to do this, mm-hmm. if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. So I, um, so I was like, yeah, $500 is worth the investment. If it gives me a machine that does what I needed to do. And it was, it ended up being a great investment for sure. And what were some of the earliest rides you went on? What was that experience like? Um, there's a great trail in Pittsburgh called the Eliza Furnace Trail. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've runs, been on that trail. it runs along. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it runs along our parkway and then it's, you know, circle, it goes in lots of directions. It's, it's actually pretty cool. It runs past our County jail. Um, it, and it runs to the South side of town, which has great, great culture over there. So yeah, the Eliza Furnace Trail is pretty cool. It's actually still my favorite trail. Um, and then, when I, when I would ride with the kids, we were always looking for like, you know, kid friendly. So I spent a lot of times, a lot of time on the trails because I wanted my kids to come along with me. And um, obviously I didn't want to take them onto the roads. So I got really familiar with that. And then I grew up in East Liberty, that part of town. Um, and there are a lot of things to bike Pittsburgh. There are a lot of bike lanes there now, which are, um, pretty conducive to getting around town without having to interact too much with traffic. So, um, so that's probably my favorite part of town to ride in. Yeah. I've been visiting Pittsburgh for uh, like 15 years or so. And the amount of investment in the the downtown and broader infrastructure and so on with bike being part of that has been, uh, it's been quite transformative in that area. So very cool to hear that you've yeah, been taking advantage. For sure. And how old were your kids at the time? And this is, we're talking like early 2010s. Yeah. Right. So I, my youngest, I taught him to ride at four. Uh-huh. So he was probably four. My daughter's three years older. So she was seven. So a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And we're like killing mm-hmm. it around Pittsburgh on our bikes. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, I have a, a niece and uh, a couple of nephews that I live with and, and a, a few nephews next door. So kind of same thing, four, six, seven, eight. And yeah. it's just really wonderful to, to have that experience. It kind of slows you down a little bit, I would imagine. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
It's a different so then, type of ride, yeah. but it's but it's valuable in so many other ways. So it's cool. So tell me about some of your first big group rides with other adults. Um, I think my first, I don't do a lot of group rides, even to this day, to be honest with you. Um, cycling is in a lot of ways a solo sport for me, which is kind of ironic because I created this <laughs> organization encouraging people to ride together and <laughs> to appreciate the power of that. But yeah, in all honesty, I don't I don't do a lot of group rides. I will say my my favorite thing to do here in Pittsburgh that feels like a group ride, but it so so isn't um, is our open streets um, series that we have throughout the summer. So they they shut down miles and miles of streets here, and you know you can just be on the on the open roads with other cyclists and rollerbladers and uh, all kind of other people on transportation and uh, and shops are open and you know everything's open and um that that sense of community is is great and it gets people on bikes who wouldn't normally be and it gets them in, mm-hmm. in an environment that they wouldn't normally be so then they start to see what's possible and that's why i like that event so much because once you experience it you're like oh why can't we have this more often you know like what's holding mm-hmm. us back and so i think it gets people's wheels turning um, into the possibilities of what, you know, open streets could really be. Yeah. I think the U S is generally behind say a lot of European countries with regards to like cycling as a modality for transportation and recreation and so on. But you kind of hit a tipping point around, um, like 5% utilization of bikes versus other modes Mm -hmm. where the infrastructure comes into play and, drivers are getting used to cyclists on the road and you have a critical mass of people who are pushing for more open streets, more bike paths and things like that. Um, my guess is that Pittsburgh has hit that tipping point. Is there significant more like additional investment happening or? Yeah, for sure. For sure. We, yeah. We've had um, for the last two, last two terms, we've had the political power behind change, which has been helpful. Um, yeah. so when folks are at the top are agreeable, you, you seem to get a lot more done. Yeah, for sure. Well, so then let's dive into, um, you know, how, how far, how many years into your riding did you decide, okay, um, I don't see enough people who look like me and I want to motivate them. I'm going to start an organization. How did that come about? Yeah, it really was immediate. Like, um, I realized that we were missing from the tapestry of my city pretty quickly. And um, within within months of me taking that first ride, I, I set up the Facebook page for Black Girls Do Bike. And, um, and then within a couple of months, I said, I sh- this might be a thing, so I should probably get the domain. So the website came soon after. And um, <clears throat> I think I, I have to go back and look because the first chapter did not start in Pittsburgh. It actually started in Florida. A lady contacted me and said, I want to create this in my town. Would you be on board? And we worked through the process of creating the first chapter. But um, yeah, it was it was almost the thought came to me immediately. And then it just took some time to figure out if it existed because I don't want to duplicate someone else's work. Um, and there was there was a group in D.C. of black women on bikes um, and they had had done a great job of it seemed to like galvanizing women of color in DC around cycling. And I thought, you know, that could, that could be, that could be worldwide, not just in DC. And so 
um, started down the path of seeking women all over the country who shared this love of cycling. So started in Florida, and then what were the what were the next chapters, and and how did that was it was it also organic people reaching out to you, or was it more proactive or a mix of the two? Um, it, it's always been people reaching out to me. I think we created a page that was dedicated to showcasing what chapters we had and also giving folks steps they needed to follow to, to reach out if they felt they met the criteria to lead a group of Black Girls of Bike um, mm-hmm. women. So, uh, so it was always, we're, we're looking for, and I didn't really solicit at all other beyond that. And the first few chapters were major cities, as you can imagine, like Los Angeles has been um, almost one of our founding chapters, Atlanta. We were in Texas pretty quickly. So our Houston uh, chapter, I think, was mm-hmm. the first one in Texas, but we've since expanded to almost uh, all the big cities. Um, yeah, just it was like a domino effect. Uh, once people realized that they could duplicate what we had done in their towns, they were very excited. And so we were just like, here, here are the tools you need and we'll give you the platform to let people know that you exist and let's see what happens. So then from there, you've got this, you know, rapidly kind of self-accumulating snowball of interest and people reaching out, wanting to start their own chapters. How did it evolve from there and um, what sorts of opportunities emerged as, as that started to grow and become uh, more visible? Yeah, I think I remember. So the first time I showed up at the National Bike Summit in D.C., which was, I believe, the second year into this process. So folks had started to hear about us. Um, and I was like VIP at the bike summit. Like everyone knew who I was. Folks were coming up to me and and they were like, let's connect. We need to, you know, we need to help you grow this. And so out of that excitement, because that's a meeting of the, you know, the greatest advocate minds of the, of, of the bike um, community. And so out of that, you know, word just kind of spread. And then I think within another year or two, um, I was part of the keynote panel speaking at the bike summit. Um, so that was, that was just crazy. And, and then beyond that, obviously, because of the numbers of women who are, who we consider members, um, we started to get noticed, you know, through our Instagram page. So some of the bike brands started to reach out to us, which was never, never even something I anticipated would happen. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I think it was just hard to ignore us because we were growing so fast and, and hopefully the content was, was so um, compelling that they, they just couldn't, couldn't ignore us. And, um, and so it just kind of, like you said, it was, it was, it was a snowball at that point and, and it kept gaining momentum even to this day. Like, you know, I, I did a project with Ford, um, just a few Saw months that. ago and that's like, that's probably the biggest of the big and, and I don't even it was a whirlwind. I don't even know how it happened. I, they were just like, "Be here at this time, <laughs> and do this thing, and we'll make we'll make some magic." And, and they did. So, so when you talk about opportunities, like I, you know, I couldn't have imagined that I would be in a, a spot talking to the, you know, the folks at Ford. That was pretty cool. Well, I thought that 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 um, that ad was pretty interesting too. Not just because it showcased you and and Black Girls Do Bike, but then also it's like um, Black women in outdoors generally. And I think it was the the yeah. the um their new pickup truck. Am I right? Yeah, the Bronco. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. um, 
Yeah, I thought that that was really well done. And I, when I saw you post it up on your pages. So then we, so here we're at, um, so now you're at a hundred or so chapters, including some mm -hmm. international, where, where are your international chapters? The biggest one is London. We have a UK, London, UK chapter as of the end of 2021, they came on the scene. Um, mm -hmm. And then and we, have a, we have a chapter in the Caribbean, but they've actually been with us for probably five years. Um, mm -hmm. And then I like to brag, I realize Alaska is part of the U.S., but we have an Anchorage, Alaska chapter, which still blows my mind. So, But that shows, you know, the, the depth and, and breadth of the organization, you know, London, Antigua, and Anchorage, Alaska. And so then, so you have all these chapters, mostly around the U.S., but but you've started getting interest from from people wanting to start in other international cities. I'm curious, like, mm -hmm. what are some of the the archetypes of people? What types of people come into your organization in in terms of their relationship to the bike and backgrounds and things like this? And how do they, how do they find you? Yeah, so it, it varies. I, I'd say we have everyone from like you know the twenty something in college who you know, is riding her bike to get around campus and she discovers mm -hmm. us to the 50 plus uh, woman who, you know, has a career, kids are out of the house and she's got lots of free time and, um, and she's either discovering cycling or she's been a casual rider and she wants to take it more seriously to, you know, um, deal with her health, mental health, physical health, all those things. Um, and everything and everyone in between, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, we even have riders who don't know how to ride, and some of our sheroes are literally holding their hand and teaching them how to ride so that they can then join the group to ride. So mm -hmm. it really, it really is a spectrum. And this this term shiro that you just use um, is this a, yeah. a term that you coined? I hadn't heard it before. Yeah, I I think I coined it, but I hear it a lot now. So then part of me is like, maybe it was always there, and I just you know. <laughs> picked it up somewhere but um but it was to play a play on the word hero and 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 i didn't really like the way heroin sounded so i was like let's make it shira <laughs> yeah. um yeah yeah and it's stuck and, so and is this so, yeah. a formal is this a formal role within the the broader community oh yeah like, so what so all the women across the the org that volunteer to lead those are our sheroes um, and some, some groups only have one leader and then there can be co-sheroes. So sometimes there's a, a group of four or more, um, who handle all the responsibilities. And then we have ride leaders, which is probably the only other title in the organization. Those are people who, you know, don't want to necessarily have the responsibility of Shiro, but they want to support and that, you know, that's the best way that they can support. So. Well, and this flows very naturally into my, my next question, which is talk to me about the structure of the organization and both in terms of how it's run um, and like the organizational structure, but then also in terms of its governance. Yeah. So I am in a lot of ways, a one woman show. I mean, these eight years I've, I've handled the logistics of running the shop because we have a really vibrant shop full of uh, gear all of our social media, I post those um, messages myself. And then, as you can imagine, all the back end things that mm -hmm. come with promoting the organization, you know, learning new skills so that we can enter into other interesting ways of talking about cycling and women in cycling. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I guess I'm the only employee of Black Girls Do Bike. Um, our Shiro's are volunteers and, um, you know, there are certain perks that they take advantage of because they hold that Shiro role. So anytime I, you know, commit to something with a company or an organization, 
I'm looking for ways to, you know, send some perks their way for the, for the hard work that they do. Um, we are as a, we're a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. And um, so that allows us to, you know, seek donations uh, from private and public entities. And that, that's fairly new for us. We've, we've actually not operated as a nonprofit until just the last 12 months or so. So mm-hmm. we're, we're growing into that role and what that means. And um, we're fiscally sponsored by a company called Players Philanthropy Fund. That's a mouthful. Um, but they're great. So they handle all of our, um, all of our back end legal and, and accounting things. So that's, that's, that's the makeup of the org. Got it. And um, in terms of like funding, so what sorts of organizations tend to like, how does, how are you currently funded? Is it a mix of organization and membership dues, primarily membership? How does, how does that work out? So ironically, uh, we've always kind of been proud of the fact that we don't take membership dues. Mm -hmm. We just want you to show up and ride. So we are funded primarily through our shop, which I mentioned. Um, I put a lot of, even from the beginning, I've put a lot of energy into uh, making our, our gear and our swag unique and stand out and be a- appealing. Because I want these women to, you know, if, even if they feel like they don't fit into the cycling community, I want them to show up and look great so that they feel great, right? So if they show up to a ride, I want them to feel like they fit in. Um, and sometimes cycling kit is the, is the way to fit in. Right. So we, mm. so we do those, we do t-shirts and all those other things. Um, we have some great partners. We partner right now with Trek and USA Cycling and REI has been a strong, strong partner for um, mm. probably more than five years now. They've been, they've been with us almost since the beginning and supporting them in multiple ways. So they're probably our longest partner. So those partnerships, you know, usually come with some sort, some sort of monetary support. And then, as I said, we're transitioned to a, a nonprofit. So just in the last year and a half, I spent a lot of energy um, attempting to secure grants. And that's, uh, that's all new to me. But, but we've had a really good year. And uh, I'd say our success rate is, is pretty high. So, um, yeah, so, so the shop, sponsorships, and grants are our three um, funnels of income. And then for our listeners, um, if there's anyone who's interested in supporting what you do, what's the best way to get a hold? Oh, sure. Um, just probably our website, blackgirlsdobike.org. Um, and there's a, there's a donate button there, but there's also, if you go to our, if you go through the page, you'll see lots of examples of, you know, what, what we've, what we've accomplished really in the last uh, eight years and, um, and what we expect to um, accomplish going forward. Yeah. And I can say just as an outside observer who's only had the opportunity to get to know you over the past couple of months as we've been chatting, um, it's it's very impressive what you've been able to pull off. And as you know, we've talked about the ridership, which is an online community that we're building and, you know, looking at it from afar at what you do and the degree of in-person community that you've been able to facilitate. Um, it's, yeah, it's very admirable. Uh, very admirable. Um, Thank you. So, a lot now, of hard curious, work from a lot of yeah. a lot of other people. <laughs> well, and and it's only recently that you have taken a salary. Is that right? Like you were you were funding yeah, this I out mean, of your own pocket and or or out of your own time until fairly recently. For sure. I mean, what I've what I've always said is we were we were a for profit company with philanthropic intentions. Mm-hmm. So the goal was always just to just to invest, reinvest, to grow. Growth was was always the purpose. 
Um, yeah. And so if there was some left over, certainly I would pay myself, but only until recently. Yeah. So that we're structured as a nonprofit and I'm the executive director now. So I'm able to, you know, formally um, be paid for the time that I put in it. Yeah. And there's a lot that you do that, um, I mean, you're a professional photographer and videographer, so you're doing pretty much all of your content, right? In addition yeah. to seeking grants and collaborations and coordinating with a hundred different chapters around the world and trying to grow, that's a, that's a full-time job for anybody. For sure. Um, so then let's talk about, um, I'm curious to hear more about the various collaborations that your organization's involved with, um, whether it be with companies or with other riding communities. So tell me more about that. Yeah, I think um, each collaboration is, is slightly different. Um, I know REI, their focus is on the outdoors. And um, so they're always looking for ways. And it's not just us. They partner with, I think there are nine other organizations right now that they're re re really focusing in on um, who all encourage, you know, marginalized communities to get outdoors and, and to feel safe in the um, and that's something that's, you know, kind of near and dear to me because I also, uh, beyond cycling, I love to hike and um, I love the outdoors and, and camping and those things. Um, but so their partnership has always been, what what do you need to be successful? And it's funny because their, their support has morphed because when it started, it was, you know, will these funds help you? Yes. And then it became, what do you need to do and what can we give you to help you accomplish it? So it was more focused on us as founders and mm -hmm. um, and what we actually wanted long-term. So that, so they've committed to three, three-year commitments of support. Um, and they've helped them in, in a plethora of other ways um, that I, I can't even really measure. Um, USA Cycling, that was unique because they wanted to, they're focused on racing and in mm -hmm. diversifying racing. So they said, well, you have this audience, but how can we help? that help you pull out women who are, you know, in your ranks, who are competitive, who want to race, but are hindered in some way who, who, so they're not racing for various reasons. What are, what are those obstacles and how can we help you help them? Um, so that was unique. And we, we got a grant this year from Rafa, which along the lines of the racing, um, mm -hmm. that that's been incredible because I always had in the back of my mind, this thought of, when we got to the point where we were big enough and we were touching enough women's lives, um, could we help some, some athletes become, you know, competitive mm -hmm. racers who, who either were struggling in the space or who even hadn't considered it because they knew they didn't have all the resources they needed. So with the combination of USA cycling and the, the funding that we got from Rafa, you know, we've committed to creating uh, at the very least, um, some some athlete ambassadors who will represent Black Girls Do Bike and and go, you know, go out and, and race in the name of Black Girls Do Bike, which on some scale hopefully will help diversify cycling and the racing sure. the racing team. Um partners, what other you, you asked about partners, what are who are other partners? Oh, we even partnered just a little thing, well not really a little thing, little little Bella's is uh, a mountain biking group when they focus strictly on getting girls on mountain bikes and comfortable in that mm -hmm. space. And I've been a big fan of theirs for a long time. And they reached out and said, you know, I know you have young girls in your ranks or maybe the daughters and granddaughters of the women who are riding with you. Can, are there some synergies here where, you know, we can help you with those girls and we can, you know, get our girls, mothers and grandmothers riding with you and, 
And when girls age out of Little Bellas, can they, you know, transition into Black Girls Who Bike? Because we welcome all women riders, not just, you know, women of color. So that was kind of beautiful. And um, we're still working on it because in a lot of ways, our organizations are similar, but they're also different in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's that been a challenge, but but our hearts are in the right place. And I think we are moving in a direction where we can, you know, merge or at least have these two communities communicating and sharing skills and, you know, getting better because of the connection. Well, so and, and just I'll, a few examples. Well, and to be fully transparent uh, with our audience, I've already shared this with you, but part of my motivation in bringing you on was to also start kind of exploring, like, what are the ways in which, you know, our respective communities can, you know, integrate and be supportive of each other and connect. Um, and so thinking about, well, first, I'm actually very interested to hear more about kind of your premier athletes within your ranks, because there are some things that we might be able to do there. But then also, I'd like to understand, I'd like to explore a little bit more, like, how, how do your members, first off, how many members do you have? And how do they engage with you and with each other currently? Yeah. So the best count I have is just adding up all of the women who are in our individual groups. So mm-hmm. we have, like I said, 100, I think we're up to 102 chapters now. Um, so at last count, we had 30,000 women in those groups. So because we don't charge membership dues, that's what I use as our membership number. Because wow. any of those women could you know, show up and ride with us on any given day. Um, so yeah, so that's the breadth of our membership. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, I'd say, I mean, on average, if you ask our sheroes, they probably have between 10 to 40 women show up for a given ride, right? Depending on the the skill required for the ride. So um, just to give you an idea of, you know, how many people we have actively riding on a weekly basis or a monthly basis. And you're communicating with your membership primarily over email or what what are the different means that you use to coordinate your rides? Yeah. So I I wish I used email more. I, um, I gave up the 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 thought of a newsletter a long time ago, but um, it's a lot of work. I I <laughs> it's a lot it. of work. It is, it is a lot of work. It, it is. I, I did it for about a year, and then I was like, "There's got to be a better way." Um, so our primary channel of communication is Facebook, mm-hmm. and that's it's been Facebook from the beginning. Um, I think probably this was true eight years ago more than it is today, but Facebook was the premier number one way to like create a community, keep them informed, you know, organize and um, disseminate information. Like there was nothing better than Facebook. I do feel that's probably changing or will change in the next uh, five to 10 years. But uh, if we, yeah, if so we, we have anything to do with it, yep. Um, so, so yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a web of, of chapters all connected through Facebook. They each have their own pages. I am on all of those pages so I can kind of monitor like the pulse of what's going on and what things are important Mm. and what topics are coming up. Um, And then some of our chapters, probably the more tech savvy ones have created Instagram pages. So they ventured out a little bit and they're using it to do some of the same things they do on Facebook, but also just to have a presence on Instagram so that they can be found. So those are the, the main channels. And there's a, I'm curious, do you have some sort of um, basic like guide to um, how to manage the local chapters? Are there meetings that you're having with um, all the different chapter leaders? How does that get coordinated? Yeah. So I have, uh, so a couple of things. We have, um, I created a, I guess, 
the best way to describe it is a slideshow that mm-hmm. like all of our heroes when like an onboarding slideshow that they all have to watch. Um, and it tells all the raw, raw, happy things about Black Girls Who Bike and, you know, what links are important and what perks they now qualify for and all those things. And then in order to keep everyone on the same page, I have a Facebook page dedicated just for Shiro's. So mm-hmm. we're all, mm-hmm. all 180 plus of us are on one page. And that way I can drop a message and they all get it at the same time. And, and I use that also for feedback. Like, you know, I'm thinking of dropping this new cycling kit. What do you think of the colors or whatever? I, um, I use that forum for a lot of things or, you know, we're considering membership in the future. You know, what kind of perks would you want as part of a membership? Like all those questions I bounce off of them, um, in that, in that arena. And beyond that, um, that, I guess that, that I guess that's the best way we organize. Um, we do have starting this year actually. I probably should have started a long time ago, but since I was so bombarded with Zoom meetings during the pandemic, I was trying not to have a Black Girls Dubai Zoom <laughs> by popular demand. This year we we started having probably quarterly. They end up being quarterly meetings with the Shiro's just to keep them you know abreast of what's going on and. Um, and also to get some feedback, you know, what things are, are top of mind for them. And so that that's, we've had one so far and we, I expect to have to continue those long into the future. So I'm curious to dive in more, uh, cause it's, you know, obviously a, a topic near and dear to my heart as we're considering how to evolve the ridership, um, both from a dynamic standpoint and a community standpoint, but then also from a technical standpoint. Um, so you've described Facebook as kind of core to how you, um, you know, manage your organization. What are the challenges that you see with Facebook? And what are the things that you would either, that you're planning on doing or would like to do, but that your current stack doesn't, you know, tech stack doesn't allow you to do? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest challenge with Facebook is that everyone's not on Facebook. I mean, mm-hmm. they're a large, large part of the population, probably under 30, Um <laughs> who have just opted out of Facebook altogether uh, or they only keep it so they can keep in touch with their parents and cousins and, um, but they don't use it as their main source of uh, entertainment information. So I I think going forward, we're going to be missing out on those ladies because we don't really have a a solution to reaching them um, at this point. And I, and I refuse to, get on TikTok and dance to get, <laughs> to get those links. <laughs> so I, I don't have a solution yet. Um, another challenge is like, so we have some chapters that have 2,500 women in them, right? I know our Atlanta mm-hmm. chapters, 2,600 ladies right now. And there are limitations on that Facebook has, Facebook has uh, implemented that you can only invite so many people to events that you post or that you create within Facebook. Um, I think one of the Shiro's told me 400 was the limit. Well, you know, if you have 2,600 people, you're barely, barely scratching the surface if you can only invite 400 to your next big event. So there's some limitations. And, I'm, and I see yeah. why they might do that. But for a group our size, that's, you know, that's not good for us. Well, and you get into 400 people, you need liability waivers, you need the ability to, um, you know, have yeah. other managerial structures, you need the ability to take... Um, you know, payments, if there's going to be a fee for the event to, to actually fund the event, because 400 people, we're talking like, you know, porta potties and police details and things like this in order to pull off that sort of thing. This is not a, um, 
a an ad hoc group ride anymore at that scale. You're right. Yeah. So there's so much more involved. And I think what's going to happen is, is that Facebook is, it's becoming less relevant already. We, we kind of can see the handwriting on the wall and um, our potential audience is going to be left behind if we don't somehow evolve and find a way to um, to bring them in. And and the tool, Facebook as a tool, like even um, advertising. So if I have a sale in the Black Girls of Bike shop and I, and I want to reach, you know, my audience, I, I will tell you the price of advertising has skyrocketed on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Like I used yep. to be able to spend 50 bucks and I could hit everybody in a week um, when we had 15,000 people. But now, that you know, it's pennies. Uh, the, the same money I spent five years ago is pennies now. <laughs> uh, yeah. The inflation yeah, yeah. rate is, is crazy. So I, I've been, I've been making do, but um, I don't, you know, there's no long-term strategy to, I don't think they're going to bring their prices down. So. It's another way. Yeah. 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 And that's one of the things that we noticed when we got to a certain scale on Instagram and it wasn't a huge scale. You know, we had a few instances where we had like, you know, a thousand likes for a post or something. And then all of a sudden I'm getting, you know, messages from Instagram's advertising sales team. And, uh, you know, we just said, no, we're not interested at this time. And all of a sudden our posts are getting, you know, dozens of likes. And that's when I looked at it as like, first off, I never liked Instagram much anyways. Um, I think that there's yeah. some good that happens there, but there's a, it can be a little bit, um, look at me, look at me. Um, and the dynamics there aren't always healthy, but then also like the, you know, people like yourself, people like us are, are bringing people to this platform. The platform is, um, getting access to their data. And then now they, and, and that they're monetizing that data in various ways. The, the platform is, and then now they want to be paid to access the audience that we brought to them. Um, and, you know, it, it, the tools don't necessarily serve the needs of, of communities like ours. So we've been thinking a lot about um, how to have online tools that facilitate, you know, offline community and connection and uh, exchange and, and experiences, right? Events planning and things like this that don't at the same time have this kind of exploitative or extractive components, which seems to be very much the direction that the, the major platforms have taken. And that's where you see, like, you, you've been in the ridership a little bit. I'm curious what you've, you know, what you've observed. And then also, I just want to encourage our audience, if you have any questions for Monica, um, you can tag her in there and uh, you know, she can, she can, you can engage with her there, or if you have ideas or ways that you want to uh, support what she does. But uh, I'm yeah, kind of curious, sure. like what, what, what you'd like to see different um, with a, a next generation of tools and maybe what you've observed with us and what we get right or wrong. Um, I, I think you guys are on, onto something. Um, at least when I talk to you, you realize our pain points. Uh, you know, you recognize our pain points, maybe because we're trying to, you know, grow this community the same way and in similar ways. But I think I think the biggest failing of our current system is um, while we do grow by word of mouth, I think there has to be a better way to to organize a community online. And mm-hmm. the, the the tools we're using now are are good enough, but they're they're not going to be good enough because things are changing every day and um, organizing the community is important. And that's, there are many layers to that. There's finding new members, there's keeping current members satisfied. There's, you know, um, you know, bringing people together around ideas of the future of the organization. Like there, there, there are a lot of levels to it. 
Um, so I would say that, that I think you're on the right track. Um, and I think you realize where the failings are in the current system and hopefully that, you know, there are solutions on the other side. I can say, um, and we'll be talking about this more publicly in the upcoming months as these tools come online, but we do have a technology partner um, for the ridership, who also happens to be one of the investors in, in Thesis. Um, and, you know, I've been, I've been in those meetings and the hope is that we'll have at least the, um, like an, like an alpha pilot sort of product that we can migrate the ridership to in the, in the upcoming months or by the summer. And this will include not just the Slack-like functionality that we have currently, but also the ability to organize events, including waivers and, um, you know, entrance fees and even conversations around the events, you know, marketplace component, things like this. So just a matter of like how quickly the development can happen. But um, I think there's a, another conversation for you and I to have both um, offline in the upcoming weeks and then maybe back here on the podcast in a few months if we find opportunities for us to collaborate. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the possibilities. I know, I mean, even just being in the Slack uh, community that you have created has been beneficial. I've made some connections. I've, I've gotten some ideas um, that have sparked, you know, other ideas. So um, I found that valuable for sure. Well, and I just want to extend a very warm welcome um, to the rest of your community that would find our community valuable um, to come and join us. Um, it's theridership.com. And uh, if you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can you can find you know, a way to contact us through that website. And if you have ideas as to how we can do things differently, um, we definitely want to, you know, we've appealed early on to an audience that is much more in the kind of more hardcore enthusiast realm. I mean, it's the types of people who listen to a podcast dedicated to gravel riding, right? So, you know, already there's, there's kind of a self-selected element to that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, but but really the, the broader motivation here is to create a place where, um, you know, really a fellowship of riders helping. And so the extent to which, um, you know, there's, there's opportunities for connection there, that's certainly something to explore. So anything else that you'd like to uh, to talk about while we're while we're here together today? Um no, I, th- I think we had all the major major topics. All right. Well then Monica Garrison, thank you very much for joining me and I really look forward to keeping the conversation going. For sure. Yeah, th- this has been great. All of our conversations have been great, so I'm glad we were able to connect and it seems like we're going to be uh talking more in the future, so I look forward to it. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. If you'd like to engage further on this topic, I encourage you to join the ridership. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can visit www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash the gravel ride. And finally, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. (laughs) 